Welcome to the Cancer Research UK Cambridge Centre podcast. The Cancer Research UK Cambridge Centre unites over 1,200 world-leading biologists, chemists, physicists, engineers, mathematicians, computer scientists, nurses, clinicians and allied healthcare professionals from across Cambridge and the UK to tackle cancer from every angle. Our mission is to end death and disease caused by cancer through research, treatment and education. We are detecting cancer at its earliest stage and are developing personalised treatments for every patient through facilitating new collaborations and driving the translation of new scientific discoveries into clinical applications to improve patient care. By working together across a range of different disciplines, our members are breaking down the barriers between the laboratory and the clinic, enabling patients to benefit from the very latest innovations in cancer science. In this special episode of our podcast, we're bringing you a recording of a live Ask Me Anything event that was held by our Pancreatic Cancer Programme for World Pancreatic Cancer Day on the 17th of November this year. The AMA session saw specialists discussing the broad supportive aspects of living with pancreatic cancer, whilst also answering questions that were submitted by members of the public. So don't forget, if you have a question that you'd like us to answer in a future podcast episode, or if you've got any ideas for topics that you'd like us to discuss in a future series, please let us know by visiting our website at www.crukcambridgecentre.org.uk forward slash podcast. So I'm now going to hand over to Dr. Bristy Basu, co-lead of our Pancreatic Cancer Programme, so that we can get today's episode started. Hello everyone, I'd like to welcome you on this um, autumnal morning. It's uh, November the 17th and it's World Pancreatic Cancer Day. Um, and it's a time when we um, think a little bit about the issues uh, facing patients and their carers, uh, with um, patients with pancreatic cancer and their carers. Uh, we did this um, this time last year um, and asked me anything um, session. And uh, what, what we really found out was there was a lot of interest in how to address the some of the more holistic aspects of pancreatic cancer management. And based on that, our fantastic PPI group uh, really drove and led some of uh, the, the planning behind this webinar, which we hope you'll find very useful. We've got a really great panel um, of, of multidisciplinary team and people with lived experiences. And so I'll just do a very quick introduction of myself. I'm Bristy Basu. I'm a medical oncologist and I co-lead the Cambridge Pancreatic Cancer Programme here at Cambridge with Julia Biffy. And I'm going to just um, introduce the rest of the team, just ask them to say one quick word, a couple of quick words about themselves. In no particular order, I'm going to Jenny first. Morning everybody and um, I'm so pleased to be here this morning. Um, my name is Jenny Jones and I'm a nurse working for Pancreatic Cancer UK Charity, which is a national charity supporting families and anybody affected by pancreatic cancer. Thank you, Sarah. Hello everyone, it's great to be part of the team here today. I'm an honorary consultant in palliative medicine at Avonbrooks Hospital in Cambridge 
I'm particularly interested in symptom control and living well with pancreatic cancer. Anna Burton. Hi, my name's Anna Burton. Um, it's great to be here today and thank you for all the organisation behind this. Um, I'm a pancreatic specialist dietitian and I work at Leeds Teaching Hospital. Um, my absolute specialist interest is raising awareness for type 3C diabetes, so relating to pancreatic disease. Uh, Nicola Day. Yeah, good morning. My name is Nicola Day. I'm a clinical specialist physiotherapist in oncology, rehab and exercise at Adam Brooks Hospital in Cambridge. Um, we look after all, all patient types, all, all types of uh, cancer, um, but I do have particular interest in pancreatic cancer. Great. Amanda? Good morning, everyone. From the heart of Cornwall, I uh, have an organic skincare company called Made for Life Organics. And we also run something called the Made for Life Foundation. And basically, we, uh, a team and I, go across the whole of the UK and run well-being events for people living with all sorts of cancers that focus on self-care. Lovely to be here and be part of this. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Kirsty. Hello, Kirsty. Sorry, morning. Um, my name's Kirsty. I'm a cancer support specialist at Maggie's. Um, my role is to be here for any visitor, uh, patient and affected by cancer um, on an emotional and psychological support. And I'm, I'm a trained counsellor too. Thank you. Uh, Laura? So I'm Laura, I'm a pancreatic cancer dietitian in Cambridge. Um, so we support people with any of their nutritional needs from diagnosis through their treatment and beyond. Lovely. Um, Anna Gorick. Hi there, my name's Anna Gorick. I work at Adam Brooks Hospital and I look after pancreatic and liver cancer patients from diagnosis through to um, end of life and um, I'm their port of call if they have any problems so very much involved thank, thank you, you. Uh, Gerald good morning everyone um, I'm Gerald Copeman I'm the volunteer director of the Elizabeth Copeman fund we are a specialist pancreatic cancer support charity I lost my wife to pancreatic cancer in 2010 the charity was established in my wife's name Elizabeth Thank you so much, Gerald. And uh, finally, we come to uh, Jim Smith, who um, will be chairing the rest of the session with some help from uh, myself and Jenny. And, uh, and we've got a number of um, questions which have already been submitted by panellists um, and um, audience previously. Jim, would you like to introduce yourself and then I will let you take the reins. Thank you. Uh, yes, good morning, everybody. Uh, my sort of expertise in this matter is that sort of set seven years ago, at this moment in time, I was sort of being prepared and on the lead up to surgery for pancreatic cancer. So yeah, as it said in my title, I'm a seven year survivor and that's given me a unique insight and interest into yeah, this webinar itself. Thank you. Thank you. So we, we, we accept that the evidence base sometimes in this holistic field is a little bit limited, but we really wanted to share our professional and lived experiences, hopefully to, to help you with some, some of these insights. Um, so I think we're starting off with the wellbeing session. Um, Jim, do you want to take over? Thank you very much. Uh, yes, indeed. Th thank you, Bristy. Yeah, I think the first section is on wellbeing, and that has been a, a sort of pretty much sort of under expected or explored sort of part of, of pancreatic cancer care or any cancer care for quite a while now, but it's now coming on board and it's been recognised, you know, this is an, an important part of the whole treatment process 
from diagnosis right through to sort of after treatment and care. So we've got a number of questions that have actually been come in on this one. Uh, the first one I've got, I think what it's saying is, uh, what do we think we need in order to help people with sort of psycho or social support? So Maggie's is here to provide psychological and emotional support. And, and that's through a lot, lots of different ways. Um, it could be as simple as sitting with someone when they first come through the door and listening um, and just providing a secure, confidential space where they can just offload when things become overwhelming from diagnosis to, to during treatment to maybe towards the end of life as well. Um, we offer one-to-one -one support ongoing from that. So we have two psychologists and we have two counsellors who we can refer people to. That's patients and families affected by that diagnosis. Um, we have group support. Uh, we don't at the moment have a pancreatic support group. We did um, pre-COVID, but uh, we probably need to think about picking that up again. And that's, that was a monthly group where we had a specialist nurse that came in once a month with myself and we would invite patients and their carers, family to come along and just talk and get mutual support that way. Um, and then we would offer the rest of the program to, to that person. So it could be virtual yoga, it could be relaxation. Um, we have an art therapy, which is face-to-face um, -face on a Thursday every week. Um, so it's really just providing a, a space to allow people to talk, to, to just, yeah, just have a quiet space to talk about their worries because they're often protecting family and friends and don't want to worry them. So we're an ideal place to do that. And we, we can be alongside them for as long as they want. It, it's totally up to the person coming into the centre or phoning. Um, and, and we do Zoom as well, but we're encouraging people to drop in more, really. Lo lovely, Kirsty. Thank, thank you very much. That sounds very much like, I mean, there's a local cancer support group that I attend in my area, which does a whole sort of holistic things as well. In fact, I should be going there tomorrow morning. They've got a drop-in centre and they provide things, you know, uh, uh, reflexology. I've just finished a six-week sort of session in reflexology, <laughs> acupuncture, and a whole range of other holistic things with drop-in centres as well. I think that is really is the important thing, isn't it? Yeah. So, I wonder if I could, could I quickly pop in, Jim, just to say on, most, a, national, on a national level, um, as a charity, we do um, support people as well. We used to do face-to-face -face prior to COVID, but now we're running virtual support sessions. Um, and they are broken down into different topics, so chemotherapy, diet and nutrition. And then we have also places called the, the drop-in, which is like for people who are affected by pancreatic cancer, just themselves so that they can talk freely. And controversially, we also have one for family, friends and loved ones and carers so that they can also have a space to talk openly with that upsetting their loved ones or whatever so and um, but we also have an online forum 
which people can use. They can log in and they can get mutual support from people. And obviously, um, it's it's a difficult one, but we 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 also have our um, support line, which people can call us on. And hopefully, as nurses, we provide some emotional support as well uh, on a sort of one to one, but over the phone, obviously. So. Yeah, thank you for that, Jenny. Uh, actually leads us on to another question, which is here, yeah, which I'm sure you'll be able to answer very well. Can I speak to somebody who's been through this experience? So I think for the side-by-side -side service that PC UK offer, you can you can deliver an answer to that question as well. Thanks, Jim. Yes, we do offer a service and we have a great number of volunteers one who is present here today. So thank you, Jim, for all your amazing support. Um, we do have volunteers, but it, at the moment, it's just for surgical patients. Um, so anybody who's preparing for surgery in particular, or who've gone through surgery. Um, and I know there are other hospitals around the country who have like body and systems as well, where people can um, also do a similar thing. I mean, it would be great to get this expanded for the whole uh, range of patients in going through pancreatic cancer chemotherapy, for example. I know that's one that we often uh, have uh, people ask about. So watch this space. <laughs> Lovely, thank you. Uh, got another question here. It's um, Is it safe for me to have a massage when diagnosed with pancreatic cancer? Amanda, is this one for you? Yeah, I'd love to answer this because it's been a controversial um, subject for some time, one which I know Kirsty at Maggie's knows about too. So the simple answer is yes, but only by a qualified therapist. So uh, within the UK, uh, there's now an organisation called the SATCC. Uh, if anybody's interested, go to the website, that's satcc.co.uk. And any therapist who has is listed on that or SPA, will have undergone some uh, detailed training, which provides the therapist who have to be NVQ level three or above, uh, to give a, a tailored, suitable treatment for anybody at any stage of any cancer. So of course, with pancreatic cancer, you need to uh, think about the PSA levels uh, that you're going through and your immune system. And also the therapist should absolutely really be able to think about and would tailor the treatment so that it avoided any pressure on the stomach area at all. But definitely get yourself in for a treatment because it will really boost how you feel in terms of well-being and also boost your immune system. I'm 100% F and massage. Mm, great. Thanks for that, Amanda. Uh, another question with the sort of well-being, it's all about, about exercise. So why is exercise important during cancer treatment? And what what is classed as moderate intensity exercise? Nikki, is that one for you? Yep, no, that's definitely something I can, I can answer. Um, so certainly there has been a huge amount of research looking into the benefits of, of physical activity and exercise during treatment. Um, and it can definitely improve a lot of the treatment-related side effects of treatment whilst people are, are undergoing chemotherapy, radiotherapy, or in the preparation for, for, for surgery. Things like reducing the symptoms of fatigue, um, nausea and vomiting, pain. Um, it can improve someone's psychological 
psychological well-being as well so um, depression and anxiety can be reduced overall quality of life can be can be improved as well as the thought that actually it might improve your immune system whilst you're whilst you're exercising so there's huge amounts of of of, of benefit with with that regard um, when I am talking about someone uh, talking to someone about physical activity and exercise we do try and focus on on three key areas we don't just jump in there and and encourage patients who are probably feeling quite systemically unwell at that point to um, leap on a bike or head off to a Zumba class we do need to kind of gradually introduce the idea and we focus on things like reducing sedentary behavior generally becoming more physically active um, before we introduce the concept of 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 exercise you mentioned moderate intensity exercise there that is where a lot of the research is at the moment so if we can get patients doing um, an activity whether it's gardening whether it's housework whether it is a, a walk or a, a you know a bike ride at the weekend where they feel like they are working somewhat hard so they feel a little bit warmer um wouldn't want to say too sweaty but a little bit a little bit of perspiration is, is is fine might feel that their heart rate has gone up slightly and they're starting to breathe slightly deeper that's the kind of the the intensity of exercise that we are looking for and the key thing really there is that the patient feels like they are working somewhat hard they can still talk in uh, they're slightly breathless but they can still talk in full sentences and it's that moderate intensity exercise um, that has really been shown to have a lot of those benefits um, as things move on we are looking at resistance exercise and other forms of um, activity like tai chi and pilates for patients that are maybe not quite feeling up to that um, but it's a, an individual conversation that we have with each with each patient Great, Jenny, uh, Nikki, thank, James, Nikki th th thank you very much. I'm getting all my, all my names mixed up now. We're nearly at the end of this session because we need to keep the times quite tight, but the, there's one final question here. Uh, how can my family be supported through this? Now, this definitely sounds like one for, for you to take on board, Gerald. Can you offer anything? How can my family be supported through this? Well, <clears throat> having been a, a, a family member during this, this this journey we often with with other families reflect on our own experience and simply share what we went through um, and offer people um, friendship um, and support um, in fact with our referrals it's it's mostly not the patient who comes to us it's often um, a, a spouse or in recent cases um, a, a daughter um, and our aim is always to um, be there we have a 24-7 a, a helpline um, uh, the the phone sits near my toaster in my kitchen if it rings late at night then I answer it um, and it's really a question of being there at all times for for people um, quite difficult to identify any specific things that would help um, families but simply talking with someone who's been through it is often the best way um, and we keep in touch like my other colleagues have said we we provide an ongoing service um, and that might, might be just keeping in touch via text or email a phone conversation or of course where possible we will meet people face to face office and just keep in touch and just find out where they are in the journey and what their concerns are are there any blockages in the system um, and try and unravel things sometimes it's about providing solutions to practical problems um, but um, 
mostly Jim it's about um, sharing experiences to see what people can take from that and apply to their own circumstances yeah thank you Gerald I think that sort of sums it up nicely and it's closed off this session I think quite nicely really as I said we need to keep quite a tight timetable on here our next session is around sort of dietary needs etc so we're talking about diabetes and digestive problems and some interesting things called enzyme replacement therapy uh, which has led me on to the first question that has come up it uh, does every patient who has had any part of their pancreas removed need to take digestive enzymes who's favorite for that one i'm happy to answer that one laura thank you yeah um so in Cambridge, we recommend um, enzyme replacement therapy for anyone who's had the head of their pancreas removed or, or their whole pancreas removed um, as a routine. If they've had the tail of their pancreas removed, we monitor people, we assess and we um, have kind of a low threshold for recommending, but we don't do that for everyone. That's not the same across the whole country. Some people recommend um, for everyone who's got pancreatic cancer or um, has had surgery on their pancreas. Um, the statistics show that people who have the disease in the tail of their pancreas or, or that's the part that's been removed are less likely to need it, but still very much may need it. And we have four dietitians in the team. We have, you know, the whole of our team is concentrated on uh, is thinking about this so we feel that we'll pick it up if, if it's needed and I think in some teams they don't have that availability and it's better to give it to people that don't need it than miss it for people that do need it is my understanding of, of, of uh, the decisions people make elsewhere so that's our policy here I don't know if you have something different in Leeds Anna Uh, yeah, to be honest with you, I think we mirror that completely. We give it to everybody that has um, pancreatic head tumour and then we assess if it's in the body or the tail on an individual basis. So I think we mirror we mirror Cambridge and Leeds, actually. Great. Thank you both. Uh, that sort of brings us really on to uh, diabetes as well, including that sort of, sort of apparently little known uh, diabetes known as type 3 diabetes which to be honest not an awful lot of GPs or healthcare professionals seem to know about. Can somebody sort of really explain what the differences are between type 3 diabetes and type 1 or type 2 and how much more difficult is it to manage or deal with? Okay so um, I'm happy to answer that one. So, um, yes, yeah, so type 3C diabetes is because um, there are many different types of diabetes, but most people are aware of type 1 and type 2. So in adults, type 2 is the most commonly diagnosed, although that is also an underdiagnosed under condition. But actually what the research is showing is that one in 100 people newly diagnosed with type 2 within three years will actually go on and develop pancreatic tumour. Um, and so there is a lot of research looking into the finding some biomarkers um, and there are some predictive scores to try and pick out those one in 100 because obviously finding that that, that tumour much earlier will, will massively change the curative um, outcome for patients. So, but it is different. So there needs to be some more research into what's driving it, but we think the tumour is 
releasing metabolites that are affecting sort of insulin uh, resistance um, and affecting the beta cells. And it's the beta cells in the pancreas that produce insulin. But on, on, a, on a level in terms of if you do develop symptoms of um, what we call diabetes, so hyperglycemia, so if you feel very thirsty, you're losing weight, you feel extremely tired, uh, you're walking through treacle, then actually that can be a sign that your blood glucose is running high. And actually it's good to monitor for those symptoms right through your treatment and have your glucose levels checked. So at the point of diagnosis, through chemotherapy, before and after surgery. Um, but in terms of it being a different type, yes, so it's unlikely to be able to manage by diet. So the only dietary recommendation is to avoid very simple sugars and highly refined carbohydrate food because they put your blood sugars up very rapidly. Um, so they're good for a hypo treatment, but they're not good to have in the diet. But actually the dietary messages um, for diabetes caused from a pancreatic tumor are very different. So it's nutritional support. So we know all the symptoms that can cause uh, changes to appetite and weight loss. So for type two, it's recommended healthy eating um, and weight loss, but actually for diabetes relating to pancreatic tumors, actually it's nutritional support. So it's regular meals, it's trying to maintain your weight um, and actually look after your nutrition because we know the benefits of good glycemic control. So looking after your sugars um, and looking after your physical health in terms of your weight and your energy levels help people cope through treatment much better. So it's certainly raising awareness to look for it and then to treat it with some medication. Um, and the only dietary change is really avoiding those high sugary foods and drinks. Thank you. That's great. Anna. Thank you, Raj. Is there anything you want to add, Laura, before we take another oh, question? I covered it quite comprehensively there. So unless anyone's got any other questions, thank you. Okay, well, as might be expected, we've got quite a few questions about sort of dietary needs. And yeah, uh, yeah, I know this one myself. Uh, well, one asked when someone with pancreatic cancer loses weight, the dietary advice it says to eat anything. Is this true? What so, unless someone's got an allergy or an intolerance or something, we don't recommend that they need to avoid anything um, in particular. So, it depends on sort of how well someone is. If someone's quite well, their weight is steady, they're as you know, normal sort of levels of activity um and no other symptoms that are making it harder to eat then we would sort of recommend the same normal sort of eating guidelines as the rest of the population but we know all the challenges that people have when they have pancreatic cancer that make it harder to eat as you normally would so you might you'll be potentially more tired so it's harder to shop harder to cook full more easily um you might have taste changes the diabetes to manage the enzymes and all these other things so in those situations if you're not able to eat as much as you usually would then it's good to be able to eat um foods that have got more calories and protein within what you're eating so um you would want to have things that are denser so there's more more fat and um, protein and things within what you're eating I really do think that there is something when someone is almost sort of craving a food that there is some nutrient in there that their body needs. So if you really, really want it, I would listen to your body and go with it. I had a lady the other day who really, really wanted prawns and someone managed to get her a prawn sandwich from the shop in the, in the hospital. And, and I think that was answering a call from her body. And so, yeah, there's no foods that are banned. That's great. Thank you. That, that's all. 
answer another question, but is there anything I should or shouldn't eat? I think you've sort of covered that one quite well, really. But the other problem can be sort of lack of appetite as well, helping encourage people to eat if they don't have much of an appetite and they don't fancy eating. So uh, anybody want to close off on that one? Um, so, yeah, so loss of appetite is really common for lots of reasons. The symptoms from treatment, the symptoms from the tumour affecting and, and down regulating the appetite. So what we'd really encourage is, is absolutely to mirror what Laura says, you know, any foods that you fancy and eating little and often and actually moving away from the messages of healthy eating. So not focusing on fruits and vegetables and salads, small portions if you fancy them, absolutely. But choosing more of the nourishing energy protein sources um, and again, sort of having little and often. So. For carers, this can be quite a um, frustrating situation because food is, is love and care. And when you have a plate, you want to fill it and offer that food and, and the person who actually has this severe loss of appetite, people describe, to then eat that plate is really hard. Um, and that can become quite a frustrating situation within the relationship. And obviously, we, that, we want to avoid that. So one little tip could be just to have a tea plate size. So downsize your portion size on the plate. The person who's providing you food ideally can then still feel like they're filling that plate, but actually not going to be overfaced. And then if you've got nourishing foods and Pancreatic Cancer UK have got a great diet resource with lots of suggestions and ideas of foods to offer. That's great. Thank you. Uh, Kirsty, have you got anything to add to that one? Um, yes, I mean, one to echo um, the difficulty that a carer um, and patient might have regarding food it is quite it can be quite an awkward um conflicting scenario where the carer wants to provide the food as you say it does mean you're providing love really and if the, the patient really isn't feeling up to it it can cause conflict and misunderstanding actually as well or you know the patient might have fancied something but by the time it's cooked in on the plate you know their appetite has gone so that that was one thing I wanted to echo and another one, which seems quite a simplistic uh, question, but we often get people coming in, not only with pancreatic cancer, but with all sorts of cancers, and they just want to know what is a healthy diet. Um, and our response is that it's a balanced plate of food, um, obviously, if, if you're not feeling really unwell. But um, so, so vegetables and fruit and um, some fiber, but it's such a general question and there's so much information on nutrition. What, what would your answer to that general question for someone coming into our centre be? Yeah, so people do focus on sort of a healthy diet and, and there's a lot of misinformation out there and, and people can then put themselves on some quite extreme diets, which can be quite limiting and also want to then focus on the healthy eating. But it's about priorities and time. So your priority when you're going through treatment is to minimise your weight loss, ideally to maintain. And if appetite is a problem, and appetite isn't always a problem with all with all cancers, but if it is a problem for that cancer, then actually it is the energy and the protein to focus on. And when we talk about a healthy eating diet, that's ideally for the majority of your life to protect you from all the other uh, diseases, heart disease, obviously, can, you know, other cancers and obesity. Um, but in that that period of when you're going through treatment, the priority slightly changes and it's framing that for people so they understand actually this is how we eat 
at the moment is probably the priority looking at your weight to cope through treatment. But then the bigger picture, when your appetite is good, then absolutely healthy eating recommendations um, that we would recommend across the, the, the population, really. But of course, some people really want to focus on healthy eating, even if they need high energy. And it's not all about just going for a you know, a, a sausage roll, you know, you can have high energy, healthy food. So that might be adding olive oil, that might be having some avocado um, on some toast. So you can still have a healthy food choices within a high energy, high protein diet. That's great. Thanks, Anna. Sarah, do you want to add anything to that one? Yes, thank you very much. I'd 100% agree with everything that's already been said. Um, you started off, Jim, by mentioning, can anything be done about appetite? And I think as we've mentioned, pancreatic cancer patients do experience nausea quite often, and they quite often experience feeling full really quickly. Um, so yes, definitely small meals, small and often. And really, from my point of view, key is managing the symptoms like the nausea and helping them feel that they can eat more from that point of view. I'd also, a word of caution really about um, so-called appetite stimulants, uh, some healthcare professionals feel that they should give a pill to help stimulate the appetite. And basically, most of those don't work and can cause a number of side effects. So following the advice that the dietitians and, and the rest of this team have already um, discussed is way more important than having a pill to stimulate your appetite. If you're really struggling, then, then there are options for what's called artificial nutrition, but that's quite um a complex area that I'm not sure whether we want to discuss that right now. It depends what other questions are coming in. Um, well, I, th I think it would be really interesting because actually this is at, at the kind of um, sort of right at the cusp of, you know, when is it too interventional? At what point kind of do we... Um, change from something that feels natural to something which is much more medicalized and perhaps that kind of does feed into you know what what the aims are and maybe Sarah you could say a little bit you know because I, my understanding is that we sort of use that artificial nutrition for very defined um, reasons maybe bowel obstruction things like that but perhaps you do, do you mind just saying a little bit about that? Yes thank you Bristy. Um I think with all treatments it's about balancing the risk and the benefit and giving the patient a choice so key is to give a lot of information about what the options are so that people can choose what is right for them. It's great that Bristy and her team have developed so many personalised or are developing the personalised pancreatic cancer treatment programme, but patients need to be well enough to enter that. So maintaining their nutritional status can be important very, very early on. And by the time patients reach often the, the hospital, they've already lost weight and, and got poor nutrition. So we might use artificial nutrition to maintain patients so that they're able to manage to receive the treatments that are going to do them a lot of good. It may be that they have no energy because they're not getting adequate nutrition and there's a lot of important things they want to do with their family. So you may need, you may use artificial nutrition in that situation as well. Um, one of the difficulties is that pancreatic cancer causes a lot of disruption to your gut function, as we've heard, or absorption and often um, a degree of malfunction of the gut that makes it appear that the gut is blocked so it can't process foods and digest them and, and move them on through the gut. So for a few patients, carefully selected and with their 
agreement that this is what they want, it can be helpful to have intravenous nutrition. But that is a high-tech treatment, and it can be enormously helpful, as I say, to support patients through treatment or to give them energy to complete important things in their life. It can be delivered to them at home, but it does take time and training for patients and specialist nurses to have that uh, set up at home. So it, so it is not something to be entered into lightly. Um, other options to improve nutrition, we've got any surgeons here, but sometimes bypass surgery to bypass an area that's a little bit blocked in the, in the gut can be helpful as well. And then you can have uh, tube feeding through the nose and down into the jejunum beyond an area that has been bypassed, and that can be useful too. So I, I'm personally, I think artificial nutrition is really important and has a role in pancreatic cancer um, because it can make such a difference to the treatments that patients can have and to how they feel in themselves. And alongside that, controlling any nausea as much as we can with drugs. And obviously, if you're um, not absorbing things and your gut isn't working, it's important that drugs are given by a different route than by mouth. Um, and again, that's something that can be set up at home. Yeah, that, that's great, Sarah. Thanks for that. We're running a little bit behind time now, but I think we've got time for one more question that's come up. It's about... Uh, about a, a crayon dosage or crayon taking it's from a gentleman who I know well is self-styled king of crayon yeah and he's been asking questions about about the use of crayon and the importance of it uh Laura this one for you yeah um yeah thank you so I mean we've talked about diet and the importance of sort of getting enough nutrition and the right nutrition in via either the feeding tube that Sarah's talking about or or the food that um, Anna and I have been talking about and drinks but really I'm not going to say there's no point but the pushing you uh, and help supporting someone to get more nutrition is not useful if we can't enable the person to digest and absorb the nutrition that they're having so one of the main, I'm sorry about the rain, it's quite noisy here. Um, one of the main roles of the pancreas is to produce these digestive enzymes that are then released into the gut to digest the nutrition that we're having. So if the pancreas either can't make enough or can't secrete enough into the bowel, then we can't digest what we've eaten. So we need to take them in the form of a capsule with what we've eaten. Creon is the market leader in this country um, and there's other brands as well that will do this. Um, and so one of the roles of the dietitian is to help people to titrate the right number that they need for what they're eating. Um, I don't have anyone that takes 20 a month, <laughs> which is what your, your question is there, Roy. If you're in my clinic, I'd probably be looking at are there any other causes of your symptoms? Um, because maybe half of your meals might be capsules. Um, but if you've got a system that's working for you, that's good. I would um, say if anyone has got pancreatic cancer and they've got bloating, wind, changing bowel habit, and they're not on enzymes, they're losing weight despite eating well, um, very variable blood glucose levels, anything like that, then to discuss that with a member of their team because that's something that they should um, have more information on. That's, that's great, Laura. Thanks very much. I think we need to sort of wrap it up on dietary issues now. We are running a little bit behind time. Uh, our next section is on sort of palliative care. So we've got ooh, a few questions here on palliative care. I think the key one is, top of this is, when should palliative care start? 
Who wants to take that one? Obviously, I'd really like to answer that. <laughs> Thank you. The answer is whenever you need it. And there is not a cutoff between treatment stopping and then palliative care starting. It's great to be part of this sort of team where we work alongside each other. And patients often need to dip in and out of palliative care. So maybe they've got some difficult to control symptoms that need treating and then they feel better and they carry on with their chemotherapy and then something else happens and they need another sort of input of palliative care. And then if they are deteriorating and reaching the end of life, then palliative care becomes paramount and the, the treatment from perhaps oncology becomes less important. But it's not an either or, it's together. There are some very good studies that have been done with lung cancer patients that have actually shown that early palliative care input has prolonged people's life by a couple of months because they've had fewer unsuccessful or inappropriate treatments. So it is a combined effort of everybody. And, and it's really important to, to talk about this with your oncologists as well. In Cambridge, we run an enhanced supportive care clinic, which are alongside the oncology clinic. So palliative care right from the start, don't ever sit there suffering from symptoms that are making you unable to live the life that you want to live. So really important to start early to control symptoms. Yeah, may I, may I jump in there just just to reiterate exactly what Sarah said as an oncologist, you know, I think it's critical to kind of adopt it early, but and, and to maybe try and, and bypass this fear about the word palliative, because for me, we're palliating symptoms with this whole idea that it's it means you're going down one track. I think it's 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 false. Um, I often start medications. I know GPs start medications um, to help with symptoms, but then I refer to the symptom control experts who are the palliative care team because the whole goal of everything we're doing is to try and make you feel better whatever you know whatever time of your pathway or journey you're in so I just want to kind of bring that up and I know that Anna wants to say something as well maybe to that effect Hi everybody yeah I really really feel it's imperative that we involve um, enhanced supportive care very early on within uh, the stages of diagnosis because um, it's it's so disruptive and absolutely traumatic to be told that you have a, a terminal disease. And I very much um, want the emotional and psychological, et cetera, et cetera, support to start ASAP. So um, it's very much on the forefront of our minds in clinic. And it's definitely something that we suggest to patients and relatives. Um, that it and use it in a way that's encouraging and not as such as palliative just it's supportive care it's talking about the inevitable early on while you're still well ish and addressing these very dark um, thoughts that can go through your mind so I, I often do referrals to the, the heart supportive care in addition to meeting new patients in clinic thank you Mm, yeah, thank you. Can I, I just add yeah. something about symptom control there? For example, pain, if you start treating it early on before it becomes a chronic ingrained problem, you're much more likely to be able to get on top of it. And it's miserable living with pain and it's difficult to accept your other treatments if you've got nasty symptoms like that. And quite often patients and families assume that the pain is caused by the cancer, which is not necessarily the case. And it may be very simple to treat it. It may be due to infection or to constipation 
or to um, pre-existing conditions that you have that, that cause pain and, and they all need addressing and real detail, detailed attention to the symptom control early on, I think will enable patients to carry on with the treatments that are available. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. I mean, there've been quite a few sort of questions on sort of pain management. I think you know, a lot of people are actually really scared at the thought of intense pain as they're sort of going through this sort of, sort of end, end of life journey. And, you know, and that's the thing that we actually think frightens them the most. Uh, there's no quite emotive question here, really. But I think it's one that needs to be dealt with and sort of responded to as best we can. How will I know if I'm dying? And what will this be like? Yeah, quite a loaded question. Happy to answer that, if that's okay with everyone else. Um, Jenny might like to come in here too. When we're dying, we start doing less, we start eating less, we spend more time in bed. There's not some fancy thing that doctors and nurses are going to be measuring. You and your family would know that you're generally deteriorating, you're spending more time in bed, you're eating less, you're sleeping more, you're not engaging with the world. Everybody's experience is different, but again, I'm going to come back to good symptom control um, to answer the, the part of the question that says, what will this be like? It will be different for different people, but for most people, it that's a process that ends with you gradually being more and more sleepy and remaining in bed and drifting away in your sleep, dying in your sleep. Um, it's important that you have appropriate drugs on board to keep you comfortable and they may be given by a syringe pump because you're not probably able to swallow very well at that point. That doesn't mean that the, if you have a syringe pump, it means you're dying. That is absolutely not necessarily the case, particularly for pancreatic cancer, because they sometimes need to be used early in treatment because you are unable to absorb the drugs through your gut normally. So having a syringe pump doesn't equal, that means you're dying, but it can be a very useful way of delivering painkillers, sedatives, anti-sickness medicines to people when they're unable to swallow and at the end of life. Okay, thank you. Uh, Anna, Anna Garrick, do you want to add? Oh, very briefly, um, Dr. Basu has something to say on a more positive note, but um, I get asked this question a lot, maybe, daily I think on the phone and um, it's something that I see as really important to discuss and um, be open about and it's the fear of of not knowing of being in pain pain is a huge and I try to reassure people that your pain will be managed so I do a lot of community palliative care referrals and try and make those introductions early on so they get to know the patient and family and come can start making a plan and talking about these things before the it happens before they become very poorly great thank you christy yeah hi sorry i just wanted to say that sometimes people get very hung up on on timelines and dates and things like that and i kind of want to say to them we we are not soothsayers we're not fortune tellers we don't know we often know when people are so sick they might only have a few days and uh, we know that they they look really really well so you know have, have quite a while we don't know in between and so pe people get quite hung up on dates and timelines and things like that uh because of what has been published in the literature i just wanted to 
kind of say that that's that's not what we're intending. All we're trying to intend to say is it might be a limited time and so use it as well as you can. Uh, we're aiming to um, help you live with cancer, not die with cancer. You know, the whole idea is this is, is to, to try and live with this um, as well as we can. And uh, so that's what I wanted to say and, and maybe to reassure some people who have this terrible um, feeling of nihilism when they're told about the terrible facts, which sometimes are associated with it. Everyone's different, but um, we, we try and individualize those conversations as much as we can. Um, I can see a, a couple more hands up. I don't know uh, whether Amanda wanted to say something yeah. as well. Amanda? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with Bristy. And I think none of us know how long we've got in life and, and the living a full life. Um, Jim, you're inspiring. And I work with somebody called Jenny, who uh, is a particularly inspiring woman going out there and living her best life. So in my role, we go out a lot and we go um, around the whole of the UK running events for people living with cancer. And all I can say is that this amazing thing that is located between your two ears is a fantastic tool. Some of you who are of my era might remember the song Ground Control to Major Tom. And I think that this is this is it. And uh, the people who um, have, have we found live a really good life, and we work a lot with the oncology team here down in Cornwall at the Royal Cornwall Hospital, it's this thing. So, you know, go out, connect with other people, do some of this amazing stuff, and remember that actually the power of touch and, and having a hug, if you can't go and have a massage or get to a spa or whatever, is an amazing thing. And also that a lot of hospices are now offering living well programs where they welcome people in. And I know Maggie's do amazing work too. So go out and live your best life because we're all here. And remember, ground control to Major Tom. Uh, great, Amanda. I think we'll probably leave the final word on that to Kirsty then. She's got a hand up. Uh, what can you add Hello, on that? Yes. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to add um, that, um, yes, Maggie's can offer that space to sit alongside someone who's experienced this sort of diagnosis and all those questions that they're asking. And, and specifically to the staff at Addenbrooke's in Cambridge, that you can make a, a referral. We have a contract with Addenbrooke's where you can make a referral specifically for your patient to, to us here in the centre, but also just suggest that they they ring us or walk over or um, just have a chat with us because we can we can hold that space we can talk and absorb what their feelings are about the end of life um, and we're very happy to to sit with that just that was all I wanted to add thank you yeah thank you Kirsty that's blonde the time is moving on very fast we're pretty much on our last one now and this is really in with when it comes on to other finances. Now, getting a cancer diagnosis, going through treatment can have a huge impact on people's financial situation. It could be the main wage earner is no longer earning, and there's lots of other expenses as well. So uh, I think the question really is what kind of financial assistance or support can be made available to people who are going through treatment? Kirsty, you've got your hand up. Um, just briefly, because it's not um, in my sort of remit, but all Maggie's centres have benefits advisors who are very happy to sit with people and go through what benefits they're entitled to, explore other avenues of grants that might be useful. 
Um, and we've just got a, a, a full-time benefits advisor we've just taken on um, here in Cambridge. So phone, drop in, he's very happy to, to go through anything that any visitor wants to explore, really. That's great, Kirsty. Gerald, anything to add on that one? Yes, okay. In addition to the benefits advice, which is very important, which, which Maggie's do um, very well, I think Millen provide that advice as well. A lot of people are hugely disadvantaged by um, a diagnosis of um, any cancer, but pancreatic cancer in particular. Um, we offer a grants programme, a small grants programme to help people with those smaller items. And typically, if, if, um, if, if the cooker has broken down or the washing machine has broken down, or if new bedding is required or new clothes because people have lost weight, um, we can come in with some some grants. It might be to do with traveling expenses um, to, to their treatment center. Um, they're only small grants, so they don't solve big financial um, problems. Um, sometimes it's helpful if uh, there can be a sort of a, someone, and I guess Maggie's could help with this, sort of understanding the, the totality of someone's um, financial circumstances and, and try and help them um, put things in, in order. Um, uh, as I say, Macmillan offer grants as well. We work with um, a, a wonderful charity called Something to Look Forward to, and they are able to provide respite breaks and treats for people who just want to get away um, and spend a family weekend together and create memories. Um, on the whole, I'm not sure how much financial advice is, is out there um, or indeed financial help. Um, but um, if anyone is, is in those circumstances, then um, I'm happy for them to get in touch with me if that would be helpful. That's great, Gerald. Did you want to uh, make a brief comment, Sarah, on that one? Just wanted to, I was going to say very similar to Gerald, that there's a lot of charities out there that um, can offer a lot of support and also that government benefits are available more swiftly for people who, with a serious illness. So it's really important to, to apply for those. People tend to think, oh, I shouldn't ask for these things. But being ill is expensive, has additional costs such as we've mentioned, new clothes, different nutrition, traveling, et cetera, et cetera. So don't hesitate to you ask for financial help as well and that's all part of the package i think although we've talked about end of life care i actually spend more time in palliative medicine enabling people to live well and as we've mentioned get, live your best life and get the things sorted that you need to to enable you to do all of that and to enjoy living that's great thank you uh, Anna, is your hand up on this one? Do you want to add something to it briefly? Very, very quickly, ask your clinical nurse specialist um, to fill in a form. It's called a DS1500. I do them all the time for everybody. All my patients get one and that will initiate everything you're entitled to, financial, financial support. So do it. <laughs> right. Thank you. Well, that has pretty much brought us to the end. We're... Uh, Please see we got we're back on time. So it just leaves it now for me to hand over to Bristy for some closing remarks. Thank you, Bristy. 
Thank you so much, Jim. And thank you uh, to all our incredible panelists. Jim, you did an amazing job of keeping us all to time. Um, it, just the last um, minute was is just to say that, you know, today, World Pancreatic Cancer Day, there are so many events happening. Um, so look at your social media. We, we've got bake sales or there'll be walks. And uh, what I wanted to just show you and highlight, hopefully through our, through our fantastic panelists, was the breadth of experience and the fact that you're not on your own. Uh, we know this is can be a really difficult time for you, but you're not on your own. Please ask for help. Please connect and uh, and then help others as well um, in this situation. Um, I hope that this has been a, a helpful session to you. Uh, I think we could have spent several more hours uh, doing this and possibly this may spin out into further podcasts because that's what happened as a result of our, our previous session. But for now, I'm just going to say thank you again to all of our panelists. Thanks to our audience for all those really interesting questions some of them really critical questions that we answer every day um, in our working careers. So, um, and I will just now wrap up and, and say, uh, go out and, uh, and enjoy the rest of the World Pancreatic Cancer Day. Thank you so much. 